I've, uh, I met a retired Orthodox priest, American Orthodox priest, um, and I'm going to pass along a few thoughts of his. Um, I, I reached out to him. He's a blogger. He's a retired, pro prolific writer still. I reached out to him, and he, and he responded. So over the past six months, I've had a few <laughs> interactions with an Orthodox priest. I love it. He's a wonderful guy. I'll get to that in just a minute. I wanted to start by reading our text for this morning from Mark chapter 12. We're working our way through Mark, as you probably well know. Uh, and here, in the midst of quite a bit of teaching, uh, quite a bit of uh, disenchantment, if you will, Jesus is trying to open people's eyes. He's trying to reach their heart and show them the air of their ways, it, teach them the kingdom way rather than the earth way. In the middle of that, he kind of summarizes the whole life of the Christian. And he does it in response to a question from one of the, uh, the teachers of the law. Uh, he steps into this debate and he says, hey, Jesus, of, of all the commands, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus. He, he, he quotes the Old Testament, the Shema. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment. Greater than these, Jesus said. This is the core of the kingdom life. And the guy responds, well said, teacher. And he repeats the Shema back. And when Jesus heard him repeat it back, he saw that the man uh, answered wisely. And he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> now, if, if you're that guy, was that, is that what you wanted to hear? You're close Although it, it, it sounds, still sounds good. I mean, if the kingdom of God is close and we're near it, maybe that's, maybe that's the best we can do. At least we're close. At least we're near. It's in, it's in reach. I, I suppose if someone told me I was close to the kingdom of God, I'd probably be happy with that. But I've been a B plus, B minus student my whole life. Are we, are we close? Do you feel close? Is the church is the church working in today's world? Is the church working? Is, is the kingdom of God getting closer to the reality of the world? Does it seem that way to you? It doesn't seem that way to me. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm a pessimist. Maybe I'm the glasses half empty guy. I heard a phrase this week I haven't heard in a long time. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And you know what was shocking? It was a young person that said that. I was like, how do you even know that phrase? That's my great-grandmother's phrase. <clears throat> a young person said, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't, know what the, I don't know what the origins of that particular idiom are. I couldn't find it as much as I searched, although it was enjoyable. It goes, there's different ways that that sort of concept gets captured. Even back as far, as far as the 1500s, some guy painted a picture of heaven and then all of these people on their way to and then a picture of hell. <laughs> and they're riding a hay wagon. They're, they're being loaded up onto a wagon and being carted through all of this debauchery and they're, and they're on their way to hell. What stands out to me in that picture, as well as the sort of the metaphor of, of, of going to hell in a handbasket, is the passivity of the people in the basket or an, on the wagon, as it were. Like there are people that are actively going toward destruction. But there's a whole bunch of other people that are going along for the ride and they're generally passive about it. That's what sort of scares me. But I guess it's true that when 
society or culture begins to deteriorate, awareness of the deterioration also deteriorates. Right? The more, the more a culture is, is, is uh, dysfunctional, the more those in the culture fail to realize that it's dysfunctional. If you've been part of any kind of a dysfunctional relationship or system, you know that part of the deal is the lack of awareness of the dysfunction. Once you start to see it, that's the most frustrating thing about it. Maybe that's what's going on. There's a lot of indications uh, that, well, let me say this way, that what that translates into, what I see particularly in young people, and, and, but, but not exclusively, is just a uh, certain hopelessness. Right? Maybe, maybe it's not passivity or ignorance, it's just a sense that I can't do anything about this. I don't have enough power. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough charisma. I don't have enough whatever. I can't really make a a difference. And when you feel that way, you feel hopeless, which I'm sure you're aware there's a lot of that in the world these days. One indication really just quite simply is how people are just not working. Particularly young people and low income have decided to just not engage. Working. Which for those that are working or for those that are older, it's sort of confounding. It's like, well, how are you going to live? Well, how, how are you going to build a future if you're not earning a wage and doing something? But that's the point. They don't want to live and they don't see a future that's all that appealing. What's the point? That is the that is the. Definition of hopelessness, or maybe the most profound outworking, is just, I quit. Where there's no hope, we get sick and we quit. This isn't news, or shouldn't be news. This is, this is God's Word. You look through the wisdom teachings and you'll see this. Hope deferred makes the heart Sick. Where there is no revelation, where there, where there is no vision of the future, the people cast off restraint. Another translation would say they, they uh, perish, which is what happens when you cast off restraint. <laughs> it's, it's not uncommon that we, we, we cast off what we are, should be doing when we are hopeless and there's no vision for the future. Another reason I think that the younger generation is hopeless, this is just a working theory of mine, is that they're being prematurely exposed to the deficiencies and the dysfunctions and the devastations of the world. Are you with me on that? At younger and younger ages, our children are losing their innocence, their wide-eyed optimism, we used to protect, every generation wants to protect their children as long as they can. I don't want them to see that or hear that. Why? Because at those early ages, your brains are forming, they're being shaped. It's not just that you suddenly have knowledge about something bad. That bad actually shapes your brain. Literally shapes your brain. You, you start to reflect the patterns and the attitudes of what you're seeing and hearing when your brain is forming. 
That's why people who have had traumatic events, tragic events happen in their formative stages are still dealing with the ramifications of that later in life because it changed their brain. Truth be told, humans in general aren't built to withstand the amount of devastation and pain that we are asked to carry in today's world. In my humble opinion, humans were barely built to handle their own issues. And maybe a handful of other close family and friends and to be prayerful about their, uh, their community. Humanity in general, people in general, you and me, are asked to engage the pain and the suffering that is global and to care about it. I, I personally think that's impossible. I don't even think it's actually healthy. You could argue that it would be okay if you got the balance of all the good that was going in the world, but we don't get that. We just get straight up negativity and we are called to care about it. And those who care about particular parts are begging you to be involved. They're inspiring. They're guilting you to be involved. The, this is on fire. The world's on fire. We've got, to, we've got to put this out and build another platform for the future if you don't get involved. So not only are you to care about it, you're to be anxious and worried about it. And I don't think we're designed for that. And our kids are getting that at an earlier age. How are they going to end up anything other than hopeless? The next generations are losing hope at earlier and earlier ages as the generations go. And I would say that when the younger generation isn't hopeful, I think the world loses hope. Because we old people, we get tired and we're done to fight. We're, we can't fight the fight that much anymore. It's like, okay, it just is what it is. And, the, and for a while, we're like, oh no, the young people are going to take my place. And then you realize, well, you're going to have to step aside eventually anyway. And then you start to turn and they're hopeless. They're not thinking about how to change the world, what to do with the world, that they could have an impact. If the younger generation doesn't have hope, I would argue that hope is on a rapid descent. Again, no surprise to God. God, God is it, it, very clear that when people lose hope, particularly and maybe specifically in God, that they turn cynical, that they get protective, that they get fearful. And once they get fearful, they get violently protective. And then they get isolated because they, now you're not even violent. You don't even want to be around people. You get isolated. And when you lose your social connection, now you, now you need some other way to feel joy because you're designed to be with people. So you get drunk in some way. You get some sort of escape, some sort of stimulation, something that, that sort of takes you somewhere else to some other fantasy world. Then you become self-destructive when that doesn't work. Stop working. Stop casting off. You cast off restraint. And then the worst part of it all is it gets so bad you start just saying, well, the rest of the, yeah, it's, this is normal. And you start to approve of all kinds of wickedness. Listen, this is, I'm not making this up. This is, this is God speaking through Paul in the very early stages of the book of Romans. Listen, it says, um, when people lose their knowledge of God, they don't retain it. They don't stay with God. 
God, by definition, really is hope and love and strength and joy. When people lose the origins of those things, God gives them over to, well, their humanity. When you, when you lose your connection with God, you just start to slouch toward Gomorrah. That's what happens. He says, look, you end up with a depraved mind. You walk away from the hope of God, you end up with a depraved mind. When you have a depraved mind, you start doing what ought not be done. And he says, then you become filled with every kind of wickedness. Filled. This is a pretty radical terminology for the first century. Filled with. Not like they're just doing these things. Paul, Paul is recognized from the teachings of Jesus that when our mind goes bad, our actions go bad, and then our heart goes bad. We are filled with every kind of wickedness. We become gossips, and it works its way out. Gossips, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Says they in, you begin to invent ways of doing evil. Disobedient to parents, you have no ability to understand things, to process, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. This is where it goes when we lose hope. When we lose God. And he says, although they know God's righteous decree, that when you lose your hope, you end up dead. You end up destroyed. But they continue to do these very things. And then, like I said earlier, also approve of those who practice them. It's a sad end when there is no hope. I just don't... I just don't know many people that are standing back from today's world and thinking to themselves, okay, good. This is good. This is what we're aiming for. <laughs> this is what we've been looking forward to. Excellent. I don't think many sober-minded people are thinking that. And it doesn't, doesn't matter whether you're godly or, well, ungodly. There seems to be quite a bit of agreement. The Christian... The God-oriented, God-centered life person knows the world isn't as it's supposed to be. The, the humanist, as it were, the, 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 those that think that, that the solutions of the world are within the makeup of, the, of mankind. Like it is our reason, our rationality, our, our, our productivity, our ingenuity can make the world a better place. Maybe that's that's what they believe, but they, but they know, just like the Christian, that the world is broken. Everybody knows that. It's just we have different ways of solving it. And you would imagine, okay, maybe here's where, maybe here's where Christian and non-Christian could, could maybe somehow agree that a critical characteristic of our existence is to work toward a better future world. Can we agree there? there? There are two very big problems with that conclusion, with that agreement, that idea that we could work, to, we could work together for a better future world. One, humanity alone, optimism, humanism, ingenuity, have proven to have almost no capacity to make a better future world. No one, humanity's not been able to do that ever, really. And catch this, I think this, this, this is a surprise from what I've understood and, and experienced for many Christians. 
Christians have no commandment from God to make a better future world. I'll go into that in a minute. But this is the problem with the idea that, hey, let's work together for a better future world. One, humanity has proven it can't. Christians, that's, that's not what Jesus calls us to. So let's look at humanity for a second. Let me, let me just sort of try to back up what I'm saying here that we're not very good at it as people, making a better future world. I, don't get, I want to get to um, Father Stephen Freeman. This is that American Orthodox priest. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy. This, this is an excerpt from one of his writings. <clears throat> at a certain point in history, people began to be told that they could take charge of history, that they could change the world and make it a better place. This was a new idea, a, a radical idea. The po- that point in history is what we now call modernism. And today we believe in it lock, stock, and barrel, even while it fails repeatedly. I think you could argue that America has been one of the best shots, one of the best attempts, one of the best experience, uh, you know, experiments of a society built to improve itself and to prove the world. But, but I tend to uh, agree with uh, Father Stephen. We may have built arguably one of the best places in the world to live for a lot of people, but securing a better future at best, is a pursuit, something we say is possible, but not something that is really measurably coming about. For heaven's sake, do you realize we've been at war as a country nearly 230 years of our 240-something years of existence? That's like 93%. A hundred years ago, a little more than, 1914, right? We entered World War I, and do you remember what those that were, that were working together to, to fight the, the enemies of that time, you know, remember what they said about that war? It was the war to end all wars. Did it? No. At the end of that war, they redrew the maps and the boundaries of the world in such a way that it would solve everything, and you could argue that those maps and those redrawings are directly responsible for all the wars that have happened since then. The ideologies and the constructs and the institutions that you could argue have provided a foundation for, for this country and this culture to be able to change are being actively deconstructed as we speak. So if it was a good experiment, it's being broken down right in front of our eyes. Christian morals and ethics, which is, which is different than like true Christianity, right? You can extract the morals and ethics of Jesus and not be committed to Jesus. But for, to some degree, Christian morals and ethics were uh, embedded in the American experiment in, in order to provide balance and a foundation so that a free market wouldn't end in gluttony. But those morals and those ethics have been abandoned and distanced from the spaces that we run in gradually over time. And any capacity that humans have generated that could possibly build a future of eventually erode and break down. Humanity has proven no capacity to make for a better future world. Most attempts at human progress almost always eventually falter. At best, we cycle through 
We don't actually make any long-term impact on the betterment of our future. What about Christianity? We can't, we can't turn to Christianity as the fuel or the foundation for the American dream, let alone build a better tomorrow for the world. That's not our mandate. Is that news to you? It, it is not your responsibility. It is not your call from Jesus, as it were, to make and be a part of making a better future for America or the world. Well-meaning as it may be to contribute to ways that could be advantageous to the future. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved in trying. But to say that's the mandate of Jesus is not true. We don't have a command. If you can find it, tell me about it. We don't have it. We are not compelled by Jesus to change the trajectory for tomorrow. He says you shouldn't even worry about tomorrow. That's what Jesus said. Don't worry about tomorrow. How can you worry about tomorrow and work for a better future? When Christians believe fixing the future is their mandate, it leads to a lot of bad marriages and treaties with those that are in power. They would seem to have the same agenda. That's why slogans that come along, whether from marketing or politicians or whomever, that say, hey, come be a part of this making the world a better place are so attractive to Christians is because we tend to operate with this sort of false understanding that that is our intent. That is what we're supposed to do too. In the 70s, a handful of Christians got together uh, and hatched a plan to lead the American church as best they could from their different spaces of influence within the church toward uh, influence and control in what way they referred to as the seven mountains. It wasn't widely advertised. They kept it fairly secret, but their intention was to mobilize the American church to move into influence and possibly take power in the major cultural influence areas, whether government, entertainment, technology, economics, etc., etc. And they got in bed, as it were, with those they made treaties with, is what the Old Testament, what God calls it, treaties with those within those frameworks of power so that they could be a part of changing the world, the future world. God has never wanted his people to make agreements, to make treaties, to get on the same page with those in the world that are arguing for a better future world. The truth of the matter is, is they don't want a better future world for the world. They want a better future for them. God's made it patently clear. This came out in the narrative of the original uh, uh, administration of the commands, the, 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 the Ten Commandments. In that conversation with Moses, God said this, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they, and I'll say, give themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. Every time the leaders of the people of God made a treaty, even when it made a lot of sense, God rebuked and disciplined them. We are not compelled by Jesus to cooperate with the world, even when that cooperation would seem to impact a better future for ourselves and the next generation. 
I know this is very, like, unsettling. You remember in the early stages of Mark, back in when we started in 2017, when we started studying Mark, <clears throat> The devil tempted Jesus in three ways. And the third one, remember, he took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in splendor. And he said, I, all this I will give you. The, the meaning is, I will give you what you need to bring about what you want and intend to do in this world, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, that is not why I'm here. To make a better future, I will not take that. I will not bow down to the ideas and the influences and the directions and the trajectories and the, and, the and the aspirations of this world. I will bow down and follow the direction of God alone. Father Stephen again. The truth is, we are not in charge of history or managing the outcome of the world. Christians, as it were. Listen, there's only, there's only one who can make a true difference in the future of this world, and that is God. Well, even when we talk about making a better world, do you understand how arrogant it is to even think we know what better is? Think about, for just a moment, think about what you would do to make a better world. And oftentimes, it wouldn't be better for the world. I know my instinct is that I can make a better world. This is, I mean, this is embarrassing to admit, but if I have to admit my human fleshly instinct is like, if, if you need me to make a better world, I just need more money. Like, that's what I think. So if I don't guard my heart and my mind, I just think if I had more money, it would be a better world. That's my view. Without God's knowledge and God's inspiration, we can, barely, we can barely hang on to the fact that God is good. We look around the world and we think God must be bad. Something's wrong with it. Or he's weak. We can't even hang on to what's good. Who, who among us would think we would know what's better for the world? It's usually wrong. Even in our own lives. You ever been doing something and go, this isn't very good for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'll apologize later. It's not our job as Christians to create a better future. And to think that we would know how to make a better future is like asking a two-year-old how to make their life better. You can just imagine. Okay, I'm going to trust you with that. You think, what do you think is better? Yeah, like donuts, lots of toys, you know, whatever I want. And my sister would go away forever. You know, it's like, who knows? <clears throat> okay that's it for today <laughs> have a great week you can't make a difference even if you tried amen <laughs> mike what are we going to do nothing what hope what hope is there if we can't be of any use i didn't say you can't be of any use i've selected my words very carefully you probably have noticed what we are to do is of enormous value eternal meaning and you can make a considerable difference the key difference is timing i have said again and again and again we are not in charge of making a better future world for the secular world in fact the better world is always in the future Have you ever notice that it's always in the future
No one is ever going, this is great. This is great. Just get on board, it's great. That doesn't get money or involvement. You have to say this is bad. The platform is burning. We've got to create a new future. And you're trying to get everybody on board because this is bad and the future could be great. The better future for the humanist, the optimist, anybody of the world that's apart from God will say it, there is a possibility, but it's always in the future. For the Christian, the better world is now. Right now. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus said. Go back to Mark chapter 1. He comes and he says what? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near Repent and believe the good news. It ain't in the future. It's right now. I told you I was going to give you a heavy dose of Father Stephen this morning. Here's another one. He says, we're not making a better world. We're waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God. That is coming, it is coming now in part and will be coming in greater lengths in the future, but we are a part of bringing it now. With every act of love, there is the kingdom. With every act of forgiveness, there is the kingdom. With every act of generosity and kindness, seize its inauguration. As Christ told us, the kingdom of God is among you. Remember what Jesus said just before he left? Peace be with you. Be with you as the Father has sent me into the world. I'm paraphrasing. I am sending you into the world. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you my spirit, church, and you're going to go into the world and bring the kingdom to bear now. Where you are, the kingdom will be, and it will be a better world right there. When he taught the people on the mountainside, that Sermon on the Mount, he started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Is. He finishes that sex section with, blessed are those who are persecuted. Persecuted, that's not a good world. Being persecuted, that's not a better future. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, because of their hope in God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and everything in between is about this divine transaction of God into the world. Now, think about the, Father, the, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. What do we say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Get in there and be salty. Get in there and be light and change the current world right now. The better world is the present reality of the kingdom of God in and through you, church. The Christian life and the greatest contribution to the world is not to get involved with the world in such a way for a better future. Although there are a lot of good things you can do and probably should do, we know the biggest difference we can make is what we bring to the table in those spaces right now. Your greatest contribution, church, is to trust Jesus and defer your life to Him. To be reconciled and identified to God. 
to be forgiven and assured of eternity with him and to be led by the Spirit, to be his man and his woman. That you know who you are in light and context of eternity and you know that you are filled with the Spirit to be able to bring the kingdom to bear where you go in the world today. I think this is where the guy that talked to ask God about the Jesus, about the Shema, the Shema was off. When I read this, I was very uncomfortable for this man. He says to Jesus, well said, teacher. To Jesus. Very good. <laughs> Jesus didn't rebuke him. He just said, and then he replies back with the Shema. So Jesus sees the guy knows, he does know that what Jesus said was true. He doesn't rebuff him, but he doesn't say, he says, you're not far you're not far. Why was, he not, why was he not far? Why wasn't he there? Because he was still the center of the world. He was still the center of his world. He's still the one in charge. He didn't put Jesus on that seat. If he'd done that, Jesus would have said to him what he'd said to many people. You have received eternal life. You have been healed. You have it. I will see you in eternity. This guy, you're close. I'm right here, but I'm not the center. The greatest contribution that you, church, have is for you to be sent, uh, revolving around Jesus, that God is central in your life. Your identity in Christ is what is most important. And the knowledge that the Spirit of God resides in you to make a difference today, that you know who you are in Him. You have trusted Jesus. He's at the center of your life. Secondly, to obey, to be, and then to do. To be his, and then to follow Jesus. The most important thing, Jesus says, Mark chapter 12, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the one. He is the center. He is the creator. He is the only the good that the world knows. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He's got it covered there, right? The Shema covers it, right? At, with everything that you have at your disposal, make it clear He's at the center and love your neighbor as yourself, which is a euphemistic way of saying love your neighbor like crazy because that's how we love ourselves. We, we love ourselves a lot. Love yourself, love, love others as yourself. There is no commandment greater. There's nothing more central to your obedience than loving God and loving others. When the day arrives and we see him face to face, <clears throat> we will not be asked if we left the world a better place. The questions will be about the commandments. There will be no question about your salvation. That'll be clear. You'll be there because you've trusted Jesus. But the evaluation of our life won't be, did you make it a better place? It would be, did you obey? We're called to bring Christ into the world. Now. To love. To forgive. To be generous. To be kind to give thanks to God always and for everything. A better world is not likely in the future. 
In Christ, though, it is near. It is in you. And it is now. The better world is the present reality of the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. The better world is the present reality of the kingdom of God ushered in by the faith and the hope and the love of Jesus' followers. And we would say it vista living at the gospel's edge. The gospel's edge we just define very simply as the people of God with the word of God around those that are far from God receiving the spirit of God changing that space. That's the gospel's edge right there. That's where we want to live. Father Stephen, one more time. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will not be asked whether we made a difference or whether we left the world a better place. The questions will be about the commandments, feeding, clothing, visiting, etc. It doesn't take all the resources of the modern world to do these things. They are immediately at hand. You don't need any money to bring about the kingdom of God. You need nothing other than your obedience to Christ to change the world that you're in right now. you don't have to fix the world or your friends. You just need to be at peace and be with them. You don't have to win that political argument. You just need to be secure in God's love and be with those who aren't. You don't have to fix that adolescent friend of your child or your student, and neither do they. Be convinced of your godly identity. Make sure they understand their godly identity, your children that is, and let them and you be with them and those who do not. You don't have to work your way toward a platform or a reputation in order to have greater influence for the world. You just need to be full of hope and be with those who aren't. Just pause for a minute and think about the things that you're trying to fix so that tomorrow can be better. And realize that's not what you're being asked to do. There are plenty of things that are broken in our lives relationally, economically, whatever, in your life. And in times we do godly things, right? We pray a little bit more. We come to church a little bit more. Why? Because we're trying to fix our world so that tomorrow is better. And that's not what God is asking you to do. In those spaces where you're with others, things are broken. God wants you to move into that space and bring the kingdom to bear right now. You love them just because you love them, not because you're trying to make it better for whomever. You get the picture. I'll finish with uh, Father Stephen. So he says, keep the commandments. Let God make all the difference in the world. You do your job, he'll do his. Bring the kingdom to bear now in your world. God, we admit that we have a tendency to want to fix things so our life is better. That is not the gospel. That is not your command. That is not your call. Your call is that the church 
who are fixed. They're fixed. We're good. We're repaired. We're reconciled. We're healed in Jesus, in your Son. And we're good. Oh God, the world needs us. But they don't need us to come alongside them for a better future. They need us. God, help us to have the courage and the strength to be in the world and to be you. To bring you to bear. To put, to put water on the lips of a thirsty person. To put encouragement into the heart of a hopeless person. To be your hands, your feet, God, help us to be a good church that is good for the world right where we are, even if it's not getting fixed. We'll leave that to you. In Jesus' name, amen.